0: We did miss you guys, and it's good to be here. And as you know, Kyle and the Kelo family is on their sabbatical. And so uh, this is my, only my second time preaching in this series. And so that means I'm going to have to try very hard to attempt uh, not to do the thing that Anna says that I always have to do which is that I have to re-preach all the sermons in like five minutes in in my own words so that we can get to where we are in the way that I think we should get there. It's not that I think anyone has done a bad job, it's just that it's the way my brain works. So I'm going to try really hard not to do that. But we are in a transitional moment in our Exodus narrative. And so as we continue and as we push that way, I do think it is worth recapping the narrative of what's happening so far to help us understand what's going on in Exodus 19. So far, uh, what we know and what we have seen is this, these movements, and that's, I, I'm grateful to Kyle and Rachel so much, as they Kyle's been the one that has done most of the preaching, and Rachel preached last week, and in a good Old Testament fashion and in biblical narrative, they have left some edges on the field for me to glean from, and thankfully, they even left me some Bible project content, so I'm even more appreciative that this makes my job all that much easier. I think they knew I would need it, you know, they're both... <laughs> more wise and kind in that kind of way so in the bible project uh, if you followed along we encourage you to do this they have the podcast the app and all that and, and that's a big part of like we were in exodus uh, our i was with that and we thought this would be a good story to do this summer to, for us together And we encouraged some of you we said yeah follow along in the app it's great um, they're doing this thing called movements Throughout Exodus, and it's to help us to understand these scrolls and these stories, to kind of take the chapters and verses away and to think about the narrative in a different kind of way. And uh, we've been in what is their second movement. But the first movement in Exodus was what we talked about early on in the first few chapters, was this idea of the it's focusing on how the people of God are exiting out of Egypt. It's the title track, if you will. It is the one that is going there. They were there and now they're not. And they've moved into the desert. And the whole point, this whole idea behind coming out of Egypt and into the desert was so that they would know the name of Yahweh and that Yahweh was God. But it was never intended that just the people of God, that the Israelites would know Yahweh. It was always intended that the nations too would know Yahweh. And we talked about this not only in that they would see Israel become a nation and that they would see Israel go and do their thing, but even in the plagues, there's this rhythm and this pattern as, the, as Moses goes and talks to Pharaoh it is so that even Pharaoh would know that Yahweh is God. This has always been Yahweh's heart in all of Scripture and in all of creation. That all would know that He is God. And that they would know His name. And to know someone's name is to know someone intimately. To understand the details about their life, their character, their nature. It is much beyond just knowing that I know that Lucas's name is Lucas. To know, when I say to know Lucas... In a Hebrew sense, is to know him intimately, to know who he is and what he does, what kind of person he has become. And this is what God's intention is for all people. And he does this by creating a people that he sets apart. He says, this group of people will know me in this kind of way, but it was never that they would know him on their own. It was always so that all of creation would come to know him. And we see this in in the interplay between Moses and Pharaoh. God longs for the people of his creation, of his hands, to know him and to be in relationship with him. And to understand their role and their purpose and their design. And so they get to the desert, and then this is where the wandering begins. Now, uh, where we're at in Exodus 19, from where we are in where they cross the Red Sea, we've spanned about three months and six chapters. And now we're at the foot of Mount Sinai. If you are a believer or have spent any time around either the ancient Hebrew scriptures or the Christian Bible, then you are very familiar with Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a a, quite literally a a rooted point in all of the narrative of scripture. And much of the Old Testament and all of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament will point back again and again and will come back to this idea of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is so important that where we find ourselves in chapter 19, at the foot of this mountain, we will now spend the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the first 10 chapters of Numbers. I have to do it in my head. I would have sang the song out loud for you too Uh, if you grew up in uh, the church, you know what I'm talking about. So We are here for the rest of Exodus, one whole entire book of the Bible. In the first ten chapters of the next. And so we are going to quite literally camp here in the scriptures with the Israelite people. At this mountain. And all that will take place over that time and that narrative as we unfold. Which we're only staying in Exodus. We're not going to Leviticus in numbers yet. Uh, maybe one day. We did do a series on Leviticus. If you want to look it up online it's there. Um, but you can follow along. But we here at Mosaic are not going to jump straight into that. But we're here only a calendar year. All of this information. I mean, this is a huge, important part of what is happening in the story and the narrative of the people of God. And so they come to the foot of the mountain. And in this process, what has been going on in the second movement, we're still in it. We're, we're kind of in this transitional moment from the second to the third movement of Exodus. But what we've been seeing happening in the wilderness is this testing now I don't know how you guys feel about this idea of the word testing. If you were good at school and you liked to test, maybe testing uh, comes as a positive to you. If you weren't so great at school and you didn't love the the academics and you or, or whatever, like maybe test with instant anxiety. Maybe think of your driving test. Uh, Phineas isn't here, but you know very shortly Phineas Mullins will be. Getting to take his test to get his driver's license. There are things that we test for when you are a a officer or in the military. You have to pass certain tests to prove that you can do certain tasks. And then there are negative aspects of testing, right? Where like my children sometimes will test me. Sometimes I feel like they're testing me and they're really just being kids and I'm being selfish and whatever and like uh, too neurotic in my head. Uh, but then other times they are legitimately testing, and they're kind of, and they need to. They need to understand their boundaries. They need to understand their place and their role. They're supposed to test. It's good for them to test, and it's good for me to test for moments where I look at them and I say, okay, I'm going to let you be in here. You're going to get this, and l- let's see if you can do it. And sometimes, to my surprise, they do better than I think they can. And other times I go, okay, guess what? Like, you, you, you don't get that toy right now because I, I gave you the opportunity. I tested to see if you could do it, and you failed. And so now we're going to have to put in new rules, new parameters, new understandings of our relationship because you couldn't do that. We do this with friends, with family, with uh, relationships we find ourselves in with significant others. This is a normal way that life functions and operates, and this is what God is doing to his people in the desert. He's testing them. And God has been doing this with the people of creation and of humanity since the beginning. We see this in Genesis. The very beginning of Genesis. We oftentimes wonder, like, why the tree? Why why would God even place this tree in front of them? Why would he even allow this opportunity? Wouldn't it have been much easier if, like, everything would have just been the way it was supposed to be? Maybe it would have been, but then we would have been robots and we wouldn't have had any kind of autonomy or choice. And that's not true love, and we know that. But also what he's doing with them is he is inviting them into this moment and into this space where he's saying to the creation and to humanity, I want you to come alongside of me and to partner in this work that I am doing. Oftentimes when we think about our relationship with God, we think of it in And we even use that, this personal relationship with Jesus, especially if you grew up in evangelical culture or even mainline Protestantism in the 80s and 90s and and through the early aughts. This idea of personal relationship, it, it is the fruition of the Reformation that happened 500 years ago. It is the logical conclusion of what was started by Martin Luther when he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the Catholic Church. It, it was where we were going to go, and it was a good thing, because what they were trying to do is they were trying to separate this idea, but in that, I think we have lost a sum of what God intends for us to be doing alongside of Him and with Him. Yes, it is never less than a personal relationship with you. God wants that, and the, but the problem with that is is when we leave it there, the categories that we think about how we interact with God are oftentimes limited to those types of categories. Maybe we think of him purely as our creator, we think of him as our father, we think of him as our brother, and in those things, it it is good, but it can oftentimes limit what I think God is actually wanting to invite us into, and what the original design and intention and creation was. And I think that's partnership. We get at this some in the New Testament, and I love this language of, this is why we use marriage language in the New Testament between Jesus and the church, Because it is meant to be this thing where there is a partnership that happens. This thing where we're serving and doing alongside of one another. Something that is like merged between us. And so God intended that his creation would partner alongside of him and bear his image. This was the call to humanity. He gives this task to Adam and Eve. And he says, you are to be my image. I have put myself in you and you are to... Co-create and co-rule and co-heir and reign over all of creation with me. You are my co-regents. You are my representatives, the ones that are to fulfill the thing in which I intended to do, which is to fill and reign and be in all of the earth. So this is what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2, is we're understanding this. That we are to be partners with and rule and reign alongside of God as heirs of the promise and of the goodness and the, in that somehow we bear his image and we take on the work that God wants to see happen in and around the world he's created. And then in Genesis 3, what we see is that God tests. He looks at his creation and he says, I need to know that you are capable of doing this. And what he is testing in that moment. Before Adam and Eve, he is testing their ability to trust that he is who he says he is. That he is good. That he is wise. And that they will submit to his wisdom and to his intellect. And ultimately, that they will submit to his understanding of what is good and what is bad. And so he plants a tree. It's the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And he says, if you will trust that I am who I say I am. If you will trust that I am good and that I have your best intentions in mind and that I am the one that you can trust at at the full level, that you can lay aside fear and shame and protection, you can lay aside what you think is what the way the world should operate and function, and instead trust that my knowledge that I've given you is what is ultimately right, then you will be able to draw near and stay near to that tree of life and have the life that I've intended for you. Or... You can reach out on your own. You cannot trust that I am who I say I am. And you can, by taking of the fruit, what Adam and Eve do is they define for themselves what they think is good and right and bad and evil. And the rest of the story of Scripture is one of God coming to be with his people, meeting them where they are, and saying, Will you trust me? Because if you will, I will allow you to draw near to me in life. I will allow you to come near to me. I will allow you to experience this thing that I intended for you to experience. And in return, you will continue to operate and function as I intended you to operate and function. You will be co-heirs and partners in what I'm doing. And so the Old Testament is this story again and again. We see it in Noah. We see it in Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. You see these promises given to this people where God is saying, if you will trust me, And the language we get in this, in these testings, in these moments, you see it again and again. You get the language of covenant. And what continually happens is God provides, He makes a way. He then gives the people that He has made a way for the opportunity to trust and to rest, to set aside fear, to set aside their own definitions of what is good, their own wisdom, and to put themselves in the hands of God and trust His wisdom, His insights. And he says, if you will do this, if you will step over this line and give yourself to it, there's this way in which you're supposed to live. And what we see is that they continually fail. And so then there are new parameters and rules set into place. And so God has to say, okay, we got to do this. I'm going to help you do this if you can't do it on your own. And as we know, as those that sit in this space, as Protestants and as followers of Jesus... We know that ultimately we believe that is to be fulfilled by Jesus and that that is the way in which he decides to do this fully and completely in order that we can continue to step into that with him. And so all through the desert, God is testing. He's testing with the bread, with the water. The people of God are testing him back. And what God is saying again and again is, I am as good as you can imagine and I am better than you could dream of. I am who I say I am and I will deliver and I will promise, or I will deliver on my promises. And then he constantly is reminding, and this is what we do, and this is why we think we should gather in this space, this is why we think we should come here to be and do what we do, is to remind and to retell and to recall that God is as good as he said. And that in our trusting we can set aside our fears, our shame. Set aside all the ways we want to cover ourselves up and hide from God and hide from one another and that we can give ourselves to this. And so God's inviting us to do it. And at Exodus 19, he's inviting the people of God to trust, to believe. And if they will, then he will make this covenant with him. And so what we just read is what uh, Moses is supposed to go down and say to the people. They're at the foot of the hill. And it's this transition moment. They've been well, we're really in narrative, and now in the rest of hold on, give me a second. There we go. Um, we're going to see that we've been in this like kind of narrative uh, overview, and then if you've ever read the Bible in a year, this is uh, Exodus like 25 on is where you probably start to to lose a little steam, because like up until this point it's been really cool stories. You're like yeah yeah, yeah I'm tracking. Your picture and Charles and Heston and like maybe Prince of Egypt. I don't know, like whichever movies you grew up on. But you've got these images, these ideas in your mind, and you're able to follow along. And then you hit Exodus 25, and you're like, I don't know what's going on. And then you hit Leviticus, and then you hit Numbers, and you're just like, okay, I'm done. Like, this was a good shot. We'll try again next year, maybe. Because we're going to get into the law. Like, the the rest of Exodus is going to read a lot like Leviticus. We're getting into this just like repetitive over and over and over again. And here's the thing. This, it's okay to skip some of that when you're reading it. It was a repetitive thing because it's meant to be an oral culture. They were meant to memorize it. And so it repeated itself over and over and over again so that they would memorize. We have the advantage of having it printed. And so it's okay if you don't want to just keep reading. Like You're not a bad Christian if you gloss over the third time they're repeating the same law. And we're about to get it. If you follow along, like this is going to be the way it is with the tabernacle. They're going to get it. And then he's going to tell it to the people. And then he's going to tell it back to God. And then he's going to ask. And then we're going to talk. So you're going to be like, okay, we get it. All right. It's a tabernacle. It's important. <laughs> Molly's going to preach it. She'll make it great. Okay. So. But it's, we're going to move into this law. But 19 is this kind of interesting point. And here's what's really cool about 19 too. Mount Sinai. We're, we're, we're coming back. It's like this full circle. This was the very place that Moses received his call. The burning bush was in the Sinai Desert at this mountain. And so like we've come all this way, and there's all this creation imagery that's been happening up until this point. And what the Exodus narrative has been trying to get us to see and to grab a hold of is this beautiful picture that God is entering into the story of humanity, and what he is doing is he is recreating what happened in the garden. And we're coming to the mountain. And here on the mountain is all of this Eden imagery. And through the bread, there was Eden imagery. And through the water, there was Eden imagery. And through the the sea, there was Eden imagery. And what he's getting at is that you guys have failed, but I will not go back on my promise. I will do the thing that I said that I'm going to do. And I will continue to create and recreate despite your failures. And I will continue to invite you into this because I know who you are. He doesn't want to just be in relationship with us because He needs to be in relationship with us. God exists fully, holy in Himself, one member of the Trinity to another. He's very secure. He does not need creation in order to like, uh, find something within Him to make Him better. As anyone that has experienced true love will, will attest to, there's this moment where you want to share that love with someone. Oftentimes, that's children in marriage. Oftentimes, if it's a friendship or a group, you start to invite people. If it's a team, you will try to convert someone over to what you love. You want to share passion, excitement, joy. When you find it, you want to invite someone into it. I think that's because it is out of love we were created, and it is for love that we were created so this is a natural rhythm, and this is what God did. He he brought his creation into it, and he says, I did this because this is so good. I want you to be a part of it, and I know who you are, and I know what you were intended to do. I know what I made you for, and I will not give up on it, and I will continually do what it takes to invite you into you becoming who you are supposed to be, and this is the story of Scripture. This is the story of the Old Testament, and at Mount Sinai, this is happening. And so there's all this image of where we see that what God is doing is he's creating a new people, a new way of being and existing that is counter to and over against what they have experienced in the world around them and broken and fallen humanity. A new way of being a nation. This is why Leviticus is mind-blowing when you start to think about it. Seems really boring and laborious, and it is And when you're trying to read it, but when you pull back and you understand that he's actually creating a people In a culture, in a society that exists and operates differently than everything around them because of who he is, it becomes mind-blowingly beautiful. And you see it compared to the culture around it, and you go, this is revolutionary. Yeah, it seems archaic to us because, newsflash, it is actually archaic. Like, it's not like it's not how we literally died. This is like literally an archaic text. So of course it seems and feels archaic to our modern minds. Of course we don't understand it all the way we should. So he's creating this new people. He's creating this group. And what he's saying to them is, I want you to be co-heirs with me. I want you to partner with me. I want you to be my co-regents, the ones that represent me to a needing and wanting world around them. And the people respond in Exodus 19 to Moses after he comes down and he says this. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6, fundamental covenant language. Bells are going off for every Hebrew that hears this. They're like, yeah, 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 covenant, good, we got it. They're thinking of Genesis 12. They're also thinking later of David. They're thinking of Noah. Like this is like these big foundational parts. And they respond and they say, yeah, we'll do it, we're in. And then you see that there's this thing that happens. If you keep reading in Exodus 19, Moses keeps going up and down the mountain to talk to God. So The Israelites say, yeah, we're in. So Moses goes up on the hill, the mountain, meets with God, says, hey, they're in, comes back down. He says, okay, this is what God wants you to do. And they're supposed to then make themselves holy and sacred and sanctify themselves and to purify themselves. And so they, they get all these rules. And you start to get this sense of like, is The people of God, are the people of God, to use verb tense correctly there, are they supposed to go up the mountain? Is that what God always originally wanted? Because you start to get this language, and you read at the end of Exodus 19, it was where Moses goes up, and the people are down at the foot, and God says, well, where are they? And Moses says, well, you said they couldn't come up. And so you're right to kind of be puzzled. And I'm borrowing heavily here from Tim Mackey and the Bible Project, as I do every Sunday. And so what he says about this is when you're understanding Hebrew Scripture, that Hebrew Scripture at times is intentionally kind of misleading or confusing. And it's not because they want to confuse you. I think of it like a great Christopher Nolan movie. Like there's a moment when you leave that movie where you're like, I have no idea what I just watched. And this is usually when Anna and I look at each other, and this is why she doesn't watch Christopher Nolan movies with me anymore. Because she says, yeah, I don't know what I just watched either. You can't explain it? And I'm like, no. And she was like, yeah, that was stupid. And I'm like, that was brilliant, and I need to watch it again. And she's like, but you didn't know what you want. I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I need to watch it again. And it was great. And then like the third time you watch it, like especially Tenet, you're like, I'm more confused now that I knew what was supposed to happen than I was the first time I watched it. And Hebrew scripture does this because it's inviting you to think about something at a deeper level. It's inviting you to meditate and maul and kind of wrestle with it. And you're supposed to ask these questions. The intention is, is that you would get to the end of Exodus 19 and you go, wait, wait, wait a minute. Does God even want me to come up this mountain? Does he even want the people of God to draw near? But as you understand it and you read it, you see there's actually this thing happening through Exodus 19 to Exodus 24. The narrative is kind of jumping forwards and backwards. And you get this cryptic little section in Exodus 20 verses 18. Here, I'll turn to it and read it to you guys So instead of trying to do it from memory. Oh, wrong one. There we go. Okay, Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. But the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Now it feels like in the narrative of reading this just in our English translation that this comes right after Moses gets the Ten Commandments. But if you're way better at Hebrew than I am or most of us in this room, our uh, few Hebrew scholars that we actually have in here are not here, um, so we'll just pretend I know what I'm talking about because I listen to other people who are smarter than me. And they will say that in this, if you can actually understand the Hebrew and the text and the verb tense and all these things. What you see is this is actually a hearkening back to this gap that is missing in Exodus 19. Because there's this weird moment in Exodus 19 after God gives them all the rules about when they're supposed to come up. And it says, when the trumpet blasts, then the people of God will come up the mountain. And it keeps repeating, and the trumpet grew louder. And the trumpet blasted and blasted again, and it grew louder and it grew louder. And what's not there is this, the people never came. The people never actually came up the mountain, and so they failed the test. And we know this, and then that is where the Ten Commandments come from. So God says, okay, if you're not going to come up, then we're going to set rules in place. Because I will not let you just exist over there. I want you to be a part of this. I want you to be co-heirs and regents with me. I want you to be partners in what I'm trying to do in the earth And in the world around us. And so God says there are going to be these rules. And so then in Exodus 19 through 24, what you get is, you've maybe heard me talk about this before. Old Testament scholars love this word chiasm. And oftentimes I feel like it's just their way to say a fun word and to find some structure. That I'm like, that's not really helpful here. I don't know why you would say, like, you don't need to talk about it. A chiasm is this. In a narrative, it's when it goes A, B, C, B prime, A prime. You can think of it in less uh, theological and academic words, and it's like a narrative sandwich. Bread, bun, cheese, bread, meat, cheese, meat, bread. Something like that. You're tracking. It's a sandwich. You guys know what a sandwich is. You're smart people. And there's this one thing in the middle, and it kind of repeats itself. And it's supposed to show you that the thing in the middle really matters. And so what you see in uh, 19 through 20... It's not even all the way through 24, it's just 19 through 20. What you see is there's this moment where the people respond. I guess it is to 24. You you see them, uh, God says, I want you to be this thing. I want to enter this covenant with you. And the people respond saying, yes, we will. And then he gives rules. And then the people refuse to come to God. And then God gives more rules. And then they say, okay, we'll do it. We'll follow the rules. Oh, about the pain and the like this is a comedy not in the haha sense but comedy in the like the playwright sense of we know that they're saying they're going to do this but we know the outcome they're not going to and it's it's painful and there's tension and there's like kind of a little bit of anxious anxiety because what we see in the people of Israel and the people of God is that we see this thing that is true of them then and is true of us today is we see fear and an inability to actually rest and trust and accept the invitation that God is putting forth before them, that he is actually as good as he says he is. And I think that's why we know the comedy and the irony of it so well. Because we see ourselves, and as you should. We know that too often that this is the case of us just as it is with them. That we see this moment and we look at the cloud. Because here's the thing about this cloud, all right? This cloud would swallow people up. As you walk up to it, as Moses is going to end up at the end of Exodus 24, there's going to be this moment where the fire ascends on to the top of the mountain. And Moses goes up into the smoke for six days. He sits, and then from inside the smoke, he's invited to come through the flames. Again, this is Eden image, barred from where the life is supposed to exist. And no one is supposed to be able to go through those flames. If you do, it'll surely be death. This mountain is supposed to be death. You are not supposed to come up it or you will surely die. And what you see is Moses going up, up, up and He is confronting and he is following his own fears and what God has called him to do. And so he is answering the call to the test that God has been giving his people the whole time. Do you trust who I am? Do you hear my word? And will you lay aside your fear that you need to be in control of your own life, that you need to have all the answers, and will you believe for just a moment that my wisdom is greater than yours and that I can see things that you can't see, and will you give yourself to it in a way that allows you to step into what I would have for you? From the bottom of the mountain, you would be surely convinced that Moses was dead. Not only because there are flames that he just walked through and your understanding of scripture and your promises of God, but also because he then stays in there for 40 days and 40 nights. And this will set up when they fail against the covenant and all of these things later. You're like, of course he No wonder they started to do other things and turn to other people to lead them and to guide them and to worship other things. He's been up there for 40 days and 40 nights. They assumed he was dead. I, I would imagine. I would I would have assumed he was dead. He just walked through flames and up into a smoke of thunder and lightning. Like, you don't come back from that. And this is the test that God will continually put forth to his people again and again. Will you trust in my wisdom and in my goodness and in my kindness that I actually have more to provide for you than you could ever want or imagine? But the trick or the test is that most of the time that looks and feels like death to us? And it would seem what God is asking of us is to come and to die. I'm reminded of my favorite theologian slash author, C.S. Lewis's work on the Great Divorce. Towards the end, chapter 11, Lewis is the narrator for all intents and purposes. You never actually hear his name. Or know who he is. But the narrator of the book is talking. And he meets his hero, George MacDonald, later on. And we know that was Lewis's hero. So we can assume it's Lewis. And so he's in this moment. He's in heaven. Or or what? It's fiction, but it's also really good and true. So um, take it for what you want. But he's in this moment. And he sees these people. And in this heaven, what there is, is there are all these people that are uh, subhuman, is what he would call them. They're ghosts in comparison to what they're supposed to be. And this is how you arrive to this state of glory. And what he is saying is our existence here now is that we are all subhuman and that we are becoming what we are supposed to be. And as we do, we will become heavier, more rooted, more eternal, more strong. And so much so that they step off this bus to get to the great mountain, which is to represent eternity with God. The blades of grass are so thick and heavy that it hurts the ghost's feet. And he refers to everybody as ghosts. And as they move up this mountain, many of the people become more sturdy and strong, and they fill out, and their, their skin becomes brighter, and they grow taller, and they become more of what they were supposed to be, and they're following this one ghost, and they're following him around, and as they see it, he's pale, he's, he's thin, you can see right through him, he's short, small, and there's this thing on his shoulder, and what they see on the shoulder is this, this lizard, and this lizard seems to be causing the ghost some pain, it, it's discomforting to him. The, the lizard is noisy and it's loud, and the ghost is preoccupied with the lizard, unable to see what's going on around him, unable to partake in the beauty and the splendor and the grandeur of what is on this mountain, seeing the angels, because he's trying to get this ghost quiet. And in the narrative, as, as the narrator watches him, the, the ghost decides he's going to leave, and as he's leaving, an angel calls out, and he says, leaving so soon. And the ghost responds, well, yeah, like I, this, me and this thing can't, we can't be here. And the angel looks at him and says, would you like me to get rid of it for you? And the guy's kind of like, well, you know, you don't, you don't need to do that. Like, that's, that's unnecessary. I don't want to bother you. It'll be good. I th- Actually, I think, look, he's quiet now. I've, I've managed it. I don't, I don't need you to get rid of it. He's good. He's, he's quiet. I think I could just come with you even though he's uh, still here. And the angel looks at him again and says, would you like me to get rid of it? It has to be, it has to be rid of in this moment. The ghost responds, he's like, oh, maybe not today. And the angel gets all philosophical and was like, well, there is no tomorrow or uh, yesterday here. This all time is now. It's present, so why not do it now? Like, this is the moment. Everything in this moment is now, so let's just do it. And the guy's like, I, I don't know. And the angel's like, let me, let me get rid of it for you. And he's like, won't you, want to it hurt? And the angel's kind of like, yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably hurt a little bit. And he says, let me get rid of it for you. And they keep going back, and then finally he says, okay, like, I, th- I think you can do it. And the angel steps forward, and he says, okay, I'll kill it. And the ghost responds, and he says, you didn't say anything about killing it. Won't you kill me? And the angel's like, I don't know. And there's this moment, in flames and fire and strength, and the narrator says that the angel grabs it by its hands, and you hear a screech, and the man seems to be in pain that he had never seen in, like, earth before. A dying, if you will, and, and the lizard falls off. And you don't know if the, the ghost has lived. And then yet, all of a sudden, the ghost begins to grow. And step in, and his hair becomes golden, his skin becomes strong, you see muscle arms extend where the lizard was. And at the same time, the lizard who had fallen to a bush, appearing to be dead, decapitated, grows into this horse. The guy ends up getting on the horse and ascending the mountain. I think that's the invitation that Exodus 19 wants to, through 24 wants to extend to us today. For all of us, there's this space or this moment, this time, where we are confronted with something. The tests continue. This is Matthew 16. The Christ would look at us and he'd say, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. If you would like life, you're going to have to die. Those who are going to pursue life will die. Those who will pursue like trying to pertain or protect and live their life will, will never actually experience it because they're unwilling to face the pain and the death that they need to face. I think there's a thousand ways we do this and I won't attempt to name all of them in this room. In fact, I'm, I'm going to kind of let it sit with you guys and ask that question of yourselves. What, what is the thing that you know that as the Lord approaches, as you come into those holy and sacred places that you feel deep within your bones that the Lord is asking to come and die? But I think what's interesting is is oftentimes we think of this in these really like dramatic ways. Moses going up, martyrs, all of these things. And I think it's easy for us to kind of miss. But what I find interesting, and here I'm indebted to Dan Allender for this understanding and this work. But what I find interesting is that there is this moment where in that, what we're being asked is to allow our life to take the shape and form of Christ. Another good academic or theological word for that is to take the cruciform life, the cruciform shape. This is the invitation so that we can rule and reign and experience this joy. When we talk about Christ and the crucifixion, in this moment of death, because here's the beauty of it, and you guys know this, but we'll name it, right? He is the one that ultimately stepped fully into death and did die and defeated death and came back from it. And this is why his disciples were lost. There is Moses and Abraham image here. There is David. Like this is, Scripture is way too beautiful to just like ever, ever scratch the surface of it. Like it is just mind-blowing, okay? So there's this moment where we see that this is who Jesus is. This is what he's doing. He's become this. He steps into that on our behalf so that we might be able to experience this thing. And his invitation to us is that then the rest of our lives would be a life that is shaped and formed like Christ, this cruciform life. The way we talk about the narrative of Jesus and his death and resurrection is oftentimes the the passion narrative. And Allender wants to make this uh, this link. And this is where I want to go today after you have wrestled with where you think you might need to go. This is where I want to go today because it spoke to me is that there's this idea that passion is the, the, the Latin word where we get that is also to mean suffering. And I think that the invitation that we see as as we are tested to trust and to know that the Lord is good, that he is near us and that he is with us, is in many ways an invitation to embrace suffering, heartache, grief, difficulty. And too often we try to make the Christian gospel about lightheartedness, freedom, and all of these other things, but on the far side of that, there's a peace And a joy that comes only through embracing the difficult aspects of our life, the stories that are too painful to face. And so what I want to propose to you furthermore this morning, that as you process this and as you think of this, that you not only look before you and like, look, here's, I'll name one of the obvious ones, right? Okay. We need to die to our pride. We need to die to our public image, especially in a society, in a space where a lot of us operate and function, where like maybe you're a little hesitant to just kind of wear it on your sleeve that you're a Christian and you're like, I'm not that kind of Christian. We get that. We talk about it enough. Far beyond that, what I think that Christ is offering so many of us is the ability in the moment to look at our past, to look at our stories, to look at our relationships and to see the painful moments that we are unwilling to face and to go back to or to walk through. And he's saying graciously and gently to us, do you trust me? Will you go to those spaces that are too difficult? Will you go to where it feels like you are going to die? Will you go to the thing that feels like there is no way you could ever go through that and come back out of it on the other side? And if we are, If we're willing to face our sufferings, if we're willing to face our heartaches and our griefs and to walk into them, I think that we will find ourselves overwhelmed with and consumed by a hope and a joy and a peace and a gratitude that removes shame, that it brings hope and blessings to our trauma, to our difficulties, the stories that we think that there is no way Christ could redeem this. Because here's the thing. If the resurrection is true, if Christ actually did walk through that door of death and that test on our behalf in order that we might be able to receive that blessing, if that is true, which uh, for me, there's no way it can, but I, like, I've given my life to it. If that is true, then we have the most beautiful thing to share with a wanting and needing world around us. Because what that is saying is we acknowledge all the faults and failures around us and we do not hide them. We acknowledge the pain and the difficulty and the shortcomings of my life, of your life, of everyone else's life, and we press into it. And we say that in that, we are meeting a God that meets us in that space and that promises to redeem us. If resurrection is real, then death itself, and I mean that both in your death that you will inevitably face, and all of the tiny deaths that you have experienced again and again that have robbed you of your humanity, of your dignity, and your value, and who you are supposed to be, all of those deaths do not have the last word. Jesus' resurrection and his hope over you has the last word. His joy, his peace, his kindness, his graciousness has the last word. The last word. And so all of your trauma, all of your shadows, all of the things that you want to hide, that you want to hold on to, that you are too afraid to let go of, all of those things, what Christ is promising to you today, if you are willing to walk through it, though it feel like death and though you may actually die in some ways, his promise to you is that he will redeem you. Now, here's my thing. I think that in this, we share some sense of suffering with one another. I think it's like the most human thing is to kind of suffer together. My, again, this is Dan Allender, like my my joys may cause envy or kind of like heartache in you. But when we suffer together, like we are truly bonded. And I think that that is the call of the church is to enter into the pain and the heartache of our own stories and the stories in the world around us and to embrace them and to say to one another, we have a hope and a peace that will meet you here. There's nothing to be ashamed of of that. There is nothing to hide from that narrative or that story when you find yourself in a space when people say, I, I don't know about that Jesus. I think you look at him and say, Yeah, I don't know about that Jesus either. But the Jesus I know looks at that story and he weeps and he groans and he grieves and he meets us there and he redeems it. Because he says, That is not my intention or my hope. And he says that to the child that has experienced things that they should have never experienced. He says that to the spouse that has never been loved the way that they were supposed to be loved. He says that to the single person that has never been able to enter into the life that they had always hoped for and longed for. And he says, I will meet you there and I will redeem it. And out of it, something grand and beautiful will happen. And I will make something beautiful out of it. And so we don't go around seeking difficulty. And we don't go around seeking suffering. That's not the gospel call. But what we go around is, is out of that. When we embrace that, we find peace and joy and gratitude. We find a way of existing and being and operating in the world that draws people to the Jesus that we know. And so I think that we, though we don't seek it, we embrace it. We understand our suffering, our pain, our difficulties in a way that knows that out of that, for some reason, in our existence and our functioning and the way we are human in a broken and fallen world, it seems to be that as we embrace that, that is the vehicle by which we understand gratitude and a profound peace and joy that like, we cannot know any other way than by going through what God would offer us. And it is in that that we trust and find Him. And so that we will never, in this side of eternity, be able to be fully free of the anxieties and of the sufferings and the pains. That we, we know as human beings, what we know is that on this side of, the, of the eternity, we can embrace it and that we can find joy in it. And then as we encounter people, we are able to be, though not free from grief, not free from anxiety, able to be a peace and calm and welcoming presence that would invite a wanting and waiting world around us into the hope and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That brings great hope. And excitement to me and into my life and something that I'm willing to give myself to again and again and something that I want to invite others into to say no there is something here that is more beautiful than we can fully understand but yeah it's gonna feel like dying and that's ultimately what we see given to us in the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is this invitation and that's what we celebrate in communion every week so as the band comes up we're gonna invite you to come To take a piece of the bread and the cup that represents the body and the blood poured out that represents the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ we're going to invite you to hold on to those elements and to be reminded that the call we have before us in these moments in some sense in some way every time we come to this table is in some small sense a small test as we're talking about of coming and remembering, reminding recalling and trusting in the fact that God is as good as he says he is that He loves us the way that He says He will love us, that He will deliver on His promises, that He will be good and faithful to complete the work which He has begun. And He calls you into that. And something happens in you as you answer that call and you come to this table as you long to meet Jesus and say, if you'll meet me here, I will meet you. And you hold on to those elements, you go back to your seat, and I'll come up in just a moment after the band plays a song, and I'll lead us in the taking of those elements. And as we take, I think something happens in us where we actually are able to embrace and confront and identify those things, those sufferings, those pains. And we find that redemption and that hope and we are overwhelmed by it. And what we do is we actually don't get healed from all that shame and that trauma just for us. It's not solely so that we can just feel better about ourselves, but primarily so that we can then step into the role that God has intended for us. And so that we can become who we are supposed to be and allow a world to experience the joy and the hope of the gospel in and through us. And my prayer for us as a community and as a church called Mosaic is that we could be those kinds of people that are willing to confront and sit in the pain and the heartache of the world around us and to not shy away from it or to run from it, but be willing to embrace it, to name it, and to sit in it and to find the gratitude and the joy and the freedom that comes in allowing ourselves to cross those boundaries and to live as those who trust that God is as good as he says he is. So as the band plays, pray, do what you need to in your seats as you need and feel the Lord responding and calling to you. Come down, receive the elements, hold on to them, go back to your seats, and I'll lead us in the taking after they finish up. Amen.